As a child, I developed a great love of scripture. We had a big post-World War II Sunday school. And when the students in the Sunday school reached the third grade, we were each given our own Bible in a big ceremony in the grown-up church. And I loved that. The theory was that by the time we were in the third grade, we would be able to read, and so we should be able to have our own Bibles to read from. We were also taught at that point that we don't worship the Bible. We worship Jesus, and the Bible tells us about him. That was a pretty good start, and eventually it led me to understand scripture and the preaching of scripture and the love of those to whom we preach it. And that's really the two points in the talk or the sermon, loving scripture and loving those to whom we preach it. Imagine a sermon with only two points. (laughs) One of the several things that worries me about the academic study of the Bible is its tendency to kill delight in and trust of the scripture. And if my preaching And if my teaching has done that, I've been doing the devil's work all these years. Holy Scripture is a gift to us from Almighty God. We monotheists are all aldimi, people of the book. Writers of the New Testament call it inspired by God, living and active like a two-edged sword. It can cut you right to the bone. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible is not a dead literary artifact from the ancient past that we poke with a scholarly stick. It is a living thing. The problem with scripture, quotes, uh, quips Pauline Matarasso, is that it encapsulates truths that are beyond our imagining. Similarly, in the good book, Peter Gomes writes, mystery is an experience of the existence of God, the frontier between what we know and explain and can explain and what we experience and cannot explain. The deep things of which the Bible speaks, Gomes says, are not problems to be solved, but a mystery into which we are invited to enter discover, explore, and enjoy forever. The problem, not problems to be solved, but a mystery into which we are invited to enter seems to me about the best possible approach to scripture. It goes a long way toward resolving the tension between St. Peter's assertion in 2 Peter that no scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation on the one hand, and our personal experiences of scripture's mystery and aliveness on the other hand. Knowing the historical context of biblical books and authors and their literary forms, and even what an aorist passive participle might mean for theology, should not destroy that eight-year-old's excited encounter with scripture and the God we glimpse through it. We who have the blessing of a theological education, and it is a blessing, may have to recover our naivete about scripture 
to communicate its messages well. Even if all the lights are on, if nobody's home, everybody knows it. Parishioners know intuitively if we don't love and believe or are not deeply transformed by and committed to the texts that we preach. Our obligation, Thomas Merton told the monk priests in training, is to read scripture with wonder and praise and gladness. That's the proof of our understanding and the proof that, as God, that God has spoken to us and is speaking through us. Scripture speaks to us, but the sermon is not about us. Our parishioners do not care what we watched on TV last week, and they are not as deeply interested as we are in our own neuroses. Everybody in our congregations, absolutely everybody, carries a burden too heavy for them. Like a virus, what our hearers can catch from us is our love of Scripture, our commitment to its truth, and its transformative power in our own lives. Preaching brings people to and helps them understand the fullness of life that God went to so much trouble to make available to us. The Bible is not ancillary to this. Peter Gomes stated equivocally, a sermon that does not attempt to address the Bible is in fact not a sermon. We read the Bible with mind and heart, with intellect and affect, and we share what is learned via the sermon. Ezra chapter 8, verse 8, the account of the rediscovery of the temple law almost perfectly describes biblical preaching. Ezra, the scribes, and the Levites read from the book of the law, the book of the law of God with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Read from the book. Interpret it. Give the sense so that people understand. Our preaching is to clarify, not cloud or confuse, pontificate or politicize. The inconvenient truth that will have dawned on you after about two weeks at seminary is that priests are expected to preach weekly from the biblical text. Most of the dear sheep entrusted to us will live all week long on what our sermon feeds them. We must add to our love of God's word, our love of God's people. I find the latter more difficult than the former. The second aspect of preaching as radical love is loving the people to whom we preach the scripture we love. In the commentary on Proverbs, the Venerable Bede wrote, better is a stupid and unlettered brother than one who, though being distinguished for his learning in the scriptures, lacks the bread of love. Point two, 
love those to whom you preach. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam suggest that everything was created by God's speaking, a hadith of the prophet, a non-Quranic utterance by Muhammad, is I, God, was a hidden treasure, and I loved to be known, so I created the world. And my breath created three books, the universe, the human person, and Holy Scripture. Unto God belong the East and the West, says the Holy Quran, and my favorite Quranic verse, wheresoe'er ye turn your eyes, there is the face of God. Wheresoe'er ye turn your eyes, there is the face of God. And our task is to find God wherever we turn our eyes. It may be easier in nature and in scripture, than it is in the people around us. But remember that the Lord Jesus was particularly good at seeing God in people. Dom Michael Casey observes that Jesus was able to go beyond the surface indicators and the social restraints resulting from cultural norms and the barriers erected by racial or religious differences and the rejection attached to an irregular morality and to communicate a sense of affinity to those in trouble. He mirrors their own nature and makes visible to them their deepest desire. The English writer and mystic Carol Hauslander expressed a related idea. It is part of God's plan for us that Christ shall come to us in everyone. It is in their particular role that we learn to know him. It is God's plan that Christ comes to us in everybody. And it's in their role, it's in who they are, that we must learn to know the Christ. When through love that is the byproduct of prayer, we're able to experience people as Jesus did, to recognize our human and common vulnerability, we will learn to see Christ in them. And that's not a coincidence. We were created in the image of God whose Son came to restore that image in us. Incarnation was for resurrection and restoration. Preachers and those to whom we preach are all theotokoi, Christ-bearers, who, for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, resides in all of us, although sometimes, as Mother Teresa of Calcutta is reported to have reported, in unfortunate disguises. How different vestry meetings and church conventions and Senate hearings would be if we saw through the disguises to the Christ resident within. Holy Scripture helps us to discern the face of God in others. How can we not love those in whom we see the face of Christ, who loves them, and who loved us, and who dies for us both? 
Christ himself commands us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And that very dark Russian novelist, Fodor Dostoevsky, shined light on this matter when he wrote, to love someone is to see him as God intended him. To love someone is to see her as God intended her. We have to train ourselves to see people as they are on the inside, as God intended them to be, and then preach to help them grow in that direction. Rowan Williams, in his book, God With Us, which I highly recommend as a Lenten book, wrote, quote, what pleases God most is God. What pleases God most is God. God loves to see his selfless love reflected, to see his beauty mirrored back to him. The gift that God would really like is God, to return to God his own generous love. Recognition of our affinity and likeness to others helps us to love them and to understand our preaching as an expression of that love. Good preaching is a gift to the preacher and the hearer. Dom Michael Casey wisely observed, it is often by animating others that we make our small contribution to the betterment of the world. And God knows this poor old world needs a bit of betterment. Knowing and telling are a progression. Pauline Matarasso says we can indeed not tell what we don't know. Learn, understand, know, love, tell. Knowing and loving, she says, are fulfilled in telling. Christ gave his disciples knowledge, loved them to the end, and commanded them to tell the whole world. Her observation recalls St. Paul. The same Lord is Lord of all. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on one whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? How indeed. The great Anglican scholar and churchman Donald Alchin was asked by a priest and a former student what to say to the retreatants in the first retreat the priest was giving. And Donald said, give them some poetry. So I will give you one and close with a poem called Advice, which I have no authority to offer you. <laughs> Preachers, poets, your calling, should you accept it, is to awaken the child within. The one at library story hour who listened entranced to Miss Cheryl's fable. Ditch the dogma. Ditch the inscrutable metaphor. 
tell us the old, old story, your own story, the one you hear in your heart on the darkest night, or in the bright light of your daughter's marriage to a guy you really like. Recount how scary it all is, and remind us that at the end, there will be wedding cake.